Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. When we study the book of the Psalms, we are actually studying five books. There is no chronological order. There's no set um, historical narrative in the Psalms. But we know that many of the Psalms actually represent life-changing scorch marks in the life of Israel, in the life of David, some of them in the life of Moses and Solomon, that became worship songs for the people of Israel. I believe that the five books of the Psalms represent or parallel the first five books of the Bible in terms of themes. For example, we have the book of Genesis and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those particular books represent certain themes, themes of the beginnings, themes of redemption, themes of worship, and what have you. And likewise, when we study the Psalms, we see that the Psalms parallel, those five books of the Psalms parallel those first five books of the Bible. This is no doubt Israel's worship guide. It's their book of worship. It's how the people of God worship. They put into song the experiences of their life. They came with broken hearts at times to worship. They came in spirits of joy and thanksgiving. There were times when they came empty. And each of these psalms represents in one way, shape, or form a plethora of emotions that the people of God brought into worship, similar to what you do, similar to what I do. The overarching psalm, the one that I believe best characterizes the rest of the book of psalms, is the first psalm. It doesn't really fit into any of the five books. It's kind of the preface, the overarching preface principle, if you will, and the rest of the Psalms, Psalms 2 through 150, are the commentary on what is stated in Psalm 1. So if you have Psalm 1, please turn in your Bibles to it. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, be merciful to us in understanding this passage. Help us to be able to apply it very practically to the spiritual legacy you seek to develop in each and every one of us and corporately as a church. So open our hearts to hear the truth of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two kinds of people that are represented in this psalm. The first person is simply referred to as the righteous or the just man. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be just? One thing I tried to make very clear to you the last time we were together is that none of us sitting here is inherently just. 
To be just is to be innocent in the face of the law. You take all 10 commandments, you spell them out in their entirety, you look at all the ramifications of those 10 commandments and how they flesh out and apply to each and every one of us, and we stand before that law, not innocent, but guilty. It's not the law that is evil, it's us. The law is good. The law is perfect. And when we break one part of the law, we break all of the law. They rise and they stand as one. And so when you commit adultery, you've broken all 10 commandments. When you bear false witness, you have broken all 10 commandments. When you steal, you have broken all 10 commandments. They rise and they fall as a whole. We cannot one day stand before God and say, God, let's play a little bit of a measuring game. Over here on the one hand, what we would like you to do is we would like you to list all of the good things that we have ever done with our lives. I was a good father. I was a good mother. I was a good worker. I treated my employees fairly, blah, 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 and on and on the list goes. So Lord, put those all in the scale over here. And then over here on this side, what we want you to do, Lord, is we want you to list our sins. And let's see how the scales tip. I want to assure you of something. Many of us have committed thousands and thousands and thousands of sins, and I mean that literally, that we didn't even know were sins. You say, well, wait a minute. If I didn't know it was a sin, was it a sin? Absolutely. Ignorance of the law does not excuse you from the guilt of the law. So there are things that we have done. There are sins that we have committed, and we don't even know what they are. There are things we have thought and said and done. There are treatments of other people that have been weighed in the balance. And so you don't want to play that game. You don't want to ask God to tip the scales. Because I'll tell you, categorically, it's going to look just like this. We're going to see that as we stand before the law, we are guilty sinners. So he refers to a just man. Well, what is this just man? What is this godly man that he speaks of? What is this righteousness he speaks of? Friends, the righteousness of God is an imputed righteousness. It's not something we are. It's something we become because somebody did something to us. That somebody is the Lord God of the universe who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And so all of those sins, all of those tipping of the scale sins that I have committed, those sins that I didn't even know were sins, were nailed onto Jesus Christ on the cross and the price was paid in full. And as you and I stand here today, there's no conceivable way we could have ever done that. There's no way we could have ever paid for our sins. So our sins, as we like to say, are in one of two places. They are either on my head or they're on the head of Christ. And so when we come to faith in Christ, what we do is we look at the cross and we say, there is nothing, Lord. There is absolutely nothing I could ever do to warrant or gain salvation inherently. There's no good thing that dwells in me. Good is measured according to the goodness of God, not according to the goodness of man. So when we do good deeds toward one another and when we treat other people the right way and we call that good, it is good in the sense of, of the way in which you and I treat each other, but it is not good enough to gain us eternal life. Because you see, God is weighing us in the balances. So to be just or to be righteous, to be called just or to be righteous, is the same as being saved or lost. We either know Christ 
or we don't. There's only one man, there's only one woman who can ever claim that they are just. There's only one person who can ever say they are righteous, and that's the person who has bowed at the foot of the cross, has looked the Savior in the eyes and have said, there's nothing I can do, Lord. There's, no, there's nothing I can do to inherit eternal life. There's nothing I can do to warrant it. I throw myself on your mercy. I pray that you would come into my heart and forgive my sins and give me that free gift of eternal life. Then and only then are you made just. And so when the Bible, when Psalms speaks of the just man, it is talking only about the believer. And this is where it gets a little unpopular. It's only talking about the Christian believer. I have seen pastors, well-known national pastors. They have large ministries. They'll get on the Larry King show. Larry King will interview them about a book or something like that. And here are these men standing with an opportunity to share exactly what they, to tell exactly to the world what we believe. Larry King and people like him, knowing Larry King and people like him, knowing this full well, knowing what, exactly what these preachers ought to say, will oftentimes bait them. And he'll say something like this. So what you're saying to me, pastor, is that if you're not a Christian, you're going to go to hell. So you can be a good Muslim, a good Hindu, a good Jew, a good this, a good that, and you are saying that those good people are going to go to hell. Is that what you're saying? And inevitably, with few exceptions, you'll watch the pastor or the, or the church leader tiptoe away with his tail tucked between his legs. He doesn't want to say that. Why? Nobody wants to hear that. Who wants to hear that? How intolerant can you possibly be? How could you dare stand up and say that the only people who are ever going to go to heaven are people who have trusted Christ as their Savior? How can you ever say that? Because that's what the scriptures teach. You either believe it or you don't. Why would you back off? Why would you renege on your commitment to Christ? Why would you be embarrassed to say that? Because you're afraid you might be accused of being unjust. There's only two kinds of people in the world. People who know Christ and people who don't. They are called in scripture the just or the unjust, the righteous or the unrighteous, the saved or the lost. And in Psalm 1, he makes a contrast between those two lifestyles. He says, on the one hand, this is what the saved man lives like. On the other hand, this is what the unsaved man lives like. Now listen closely to me. You can be unsaved and do many good things. And there are many good people out there, and I'm putting the word good in quotes. It's important that you know I've put the word good in quotes. There are many good people out there who do many good things. The question now, is this the moral good that is required to go to heaven? Is that good enough? Are these words that are in quotes good, good enough to warrant somebody eternal life? What does the Bible have to say about that? All of my righteousness is become as filthy rags in the sight of God. Not just rags, filthy rags, dung-filled rags. So you can take all of the good, in quotes, that you have done and wrap it all up and say, now, God, I'm presenting this to you as my ticket to glory. And God looks at that and says, that is filthy rags. Why? Because goodness is measured 
by God's goodness, not by man's goodness. When you talk about God's goodness, you're talking about holiness. Holiness. When you look at those man-made pictures of God's created order, you get chills going up and down your spine, seeing the, the massiveness of God's creative genius. And who are we? What is man, O oh Lord, that you are mindful of him? When we look at ourselves in the scheme of God's magnificent creation, how could we dare think we are good enough? How could we dare think that we are worthy enough when we see the goodness of God, the order of God, the holiness of God? So there's two kinds of people. You're either just or you're unjust. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. You're either saved or you're lost. You're not in between. You're not saved, but not really saved. You're not righteous, but maybe not so righteous. You're either saved or you're lost. And so what the psalmist does here, he says, now, I'm going to give you the overview of the whole book. All 150 psalms come down to this. There's two kinds of people in the world, the saved and the lost, the just and the unjust. Now, he makes certain promises about that saved man. In verse 1, he says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, that progression, which I mentioned to you last week, the fact that we start by sitting, we end up by scorning. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, now that's the moral law of God. The law of God is the moral law. The Ten Commandments, that's the moral law of God. We delight in that. We look at the moral law of God and we say, that is my delight. I take glory. I take delight in the law of God. I thank you, God, that this is what you told me. I thank you, God, that this is what you taught me. I thank you, God, that this is the standard by which I am to live. When Jesus initiates the New Testament Constitution, I call it the Constitution of the New Testament Church, the Sermon on the Mount, he stands up. And he says, now listen to me. You haven't committed adultery. You haven't had a physical relationship with another woman. So you think you've kept the commandment that says you shall not have, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look upon another with lust in your heart, you've already broken that law. And if you broke that law, you broke the nine others that go with it. He starts talking about the way in which the law begins to apply to us in ways that we didn't dream possible. Now we can't look at that and say that's our enemy. The law is not the enemy. The enemy is within. We look at the law and we basically say, God's law is good. It's designed for my betterment. It's designed for the glory of God in me. It's designed to keep me pure. But that law also convicts me. Paul in Romans chapter 7 would say, you know, there's a war going on inside of me. The war of sin, the war of the flesh. There's something inside of me as a Christian that says, I want to do the right thing. But there's something else that's warring in me. The, the, the stain of sin on my fleshly nature wars against what is good and right. And I struggle. And we all do, don't we? We struggle. You come to the end of Romans chapter 7 and Paul says, the end, the end product of, of his whole discussion is this. He says, I want to do the right thing. I end up doing the wrong thing. Every time I want to do the right thing, I end up doing the wrong thing. I have this struggle, this war. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And if the chapter ended there, if the book of Romans ended there, there would be no answer to that question. But Romans chapter 8 says what? Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation 
to them who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Even though that struggle is there, even though we war against the the sinful lust of the flesh, the things that have infected us, we can claim the righteousness of Christ. We can look at that and say, God has given me salvation. I have been forgiven. My sins have been washed away. I know my Savior. My Savior knows me. Even though I struggle with the sins of the flesh, I can rest assured of perfect peace that God will give me. The just and the unjust. He says in verse 3, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in season. Its leaf also does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Of course, that doesn't mean prosperity in terms of our earthly life, but we begin to see our earthly prosperities in a different light. We begin to see the blessings of God here in a different light. We don't look at our blessings anymore here, the earthly blessings, the material blessings here. We don't look at them any longer through the same grid. We see them through a different grid, that God has given me possessions, and God has given me this, and God has given me that for one purpose and one purpose only, to create a worldview that will affect and affect how I am and who I am eternally, not just in an earthly sense. So we begin to see things differently, and there's prosperity in that. Not the prosperity of, well, God, I'm going to give you $10. I expect you to give me back 100 No, what God will do with your $10, if you invest it wisely, is he will, he will bless that money. He'll bless that gift. He'll bless that, that, that ministry of yours, and he'll use it in ways that you don't even see. There are things that you're going to see when you get to heaven you didn't even realize God was doing behind the scenes. God was creating good out of some of the terrible situations that you have faced. He doesn't owe you an explanation for that in this life. We invest it for eternity. So he says, blessed is that man. He's the tree planted by the streams of water. He brings forth fruit when everything else is burning up around him. He's soaking in the roots into the streams of living water. He is producing the fruit. That's who we are as believers. We don't often see it. We don't often feel it. But God is creating in each of us as we love him, a heart that follows after him eternally. But now notice the change of pace in verse 4. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. I want you to listen closely to something. When we talk about the wicked, we're talking about the unsaved man. We tend to look at the word wicked as people who go out and commit murder and rape and steal and you know, those horrible, egregious offenses. We look at people that do all those things and we say, well, that's, they're wicked people. But wickedness is measured against the backdrop of the law. And there's only one way in which we can be called wicked. And that's when we are faced with the law, apart from Christ, we're wicked. If you don't know Christ, we're wicked. Now, there are differing degrees of wickedness. Some are more wicked than others, but when it all comes down to it, when we all stand before God one day, wicked means wicked. It doesn't matter how wicked, wicked is wicked. It doesn't change the definition of the word. So if you don't know Christ, there's differing degrees of wickedness, but we're wicked apart from faith in Christ. Likewise, when we come to faith in Christ, That wickedness is removed, and God sees us through the eyes of his son. He says, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. 
You ever see people who are the wicked seemingly getting blessed by God like their, their socks are getting blessed off? This caused many of the Psalms, one of many of the, the writings of the Psalms, men questioned God. They said, Lord, here I am. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to bring honor to your name. I'm trying to order my life in such a way that I can bring honor and glory to who you are. And then I look around me and I see all these people that could care less about who you are. And they have all these blessings. They have money. They have power. They have good health. They have physical beauty. They have this. And on and on the list goes. We look at them and we say, why are they being blessed? They could care less about who you are. Why are they being blessed? Listen closely. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 2 answers that question. I think it's a verse of scripture that is frightening, especially if you don't know Christ this morning. In Malachi 2 verse 2, God says to us, if you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them. Because you did not set your heart to honor me. You look around and you see the prosperity of the wicked. The Bible cannot be clearer. The prosperity of the wicked, that very prosperity will one day rise up against them. The very blessings of God not only will be cursed, they're already cursed. So fundamentally, we can say about that person who seems to be getting away with murder, who seems to be blessed in ways that some of us dream about being blessed, you can legitimately say of that person, they have their reward. This is it. But when we take those blessings and square them with what's going to happen eternally, Listen, there is a dreadful, dreadful day that awaits the unjust and an end to all of their plans will one day occur. The very blessings God gave them will rise up to curse them. So you take all these beautiful people who have all this physical beauty, all this rich acting talent, all this musical talent. You look at people who, whose lives have clearly reflected of um, a view, a worldview that is opposite the scriptures. You look at some of the great musicians of this day, the, the people who sing off tune better than most of us can ever sing or dream to sing in our lifetime. You look at the actors and the people who have all of this talent, all this beauty. One day they're going to stand before God and he's going to say, what did you do with that beauty that I gave you? What did you do with that talent that I gave you? I gave you that voice to sing. I gave you those beautiful eyes. I gave you that beautiful hair. I gave you that beautiful body. What did you do with it? How did you use it? How did it bring glory to my name? And then they will understand. Then they will receive the results of the fact that the blessings they received in this life are now rising up to curse them. You following this? And that's what the question is in Psalms, many of the Psalms. There's nothing but disappointment awaiting them. 
He calls it there. He says, you know what they're like? They're like chaff. You know what chaff is? If you go and you harvest the wheat, you go and you cut down the wheat, you harvest the wheat, you pick up a, a handful of the, the wheat stalks and you shake it. And all of a sudden, the chaff blows off, the dust, if you will, and it dissipates into the air. What are you left with? You're left with the fruit. You see, this is what's coming one day. The harvest is coming. The great harvest that God promises, the wheat and the tare will be harvested together. The wheat and the weeds will be harvested together. The sheep and the goats will be separated out. The just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the lost, the believer and the non-believer. We will stand before God and it will be a dreadful day, a dreadful day where all of the plans of men rise up and accuse them. And there is great disappointment. They are like the chaff, like the plans of the unjust. They are blown away when the wheat is harvested. If you look in Ezekiel 15, the prophet catches a glimpse of this. Listen to this language. Ezekiel 15, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Always perk up when Ezekiel says the word of the Lord came to me. It's one of the more profound of the prophetic books. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. How is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch of any of the trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? And after it is thrown on the fire as fuel, and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? If it was not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so will I treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the sovereign Lord. That ought to give you chills up and down your spine to think about what God has promised there. The death of the unjust is a dreadful thing. And even the distresses of nature warn of its imminence. I believe that with all my heart. Every time I see a tornado and its destructive power, every time I see a hurricane or an earthquake or a tsunami or even a severe thunderstorm, my mind goes to this concept that God is firing warning shots. He's saying even nature is crying out. Destruction is to come. Even nature is warning you. Destruction is to come. And even that warning becomes a warning to the unjust. When Voltaire was dying, the atheist Voltaire in his dying days, I think something got a hold of him. He feared death. He feared it greatly. This was a man that cursed and blasphemed everything the scriptures teach. Voltaire got a hold of his doctor. 
brought his doctor in and said, I'll pay you anything. Just heal me. The futility of a man's life, coming to the end of his life, knowing how he's lived his life, and knowing that he must now face the very God he says doesn't exist. The very God that doesn't exist. Even nature cries. Our bodies cry out. That's why we get cancer. That's why we get heart disease. That's why when you start getting older, your bones start to get more brittle. That's why from the time you're born as a little baby until the time you die, there's a constant dying process that's going on. Even your bodies are screaming out saying, something's not right here. Something's just not the way it's supposed to be. We live in a sin-fractured world in sin-fractured bodies. Even our bodies cry out, there is a judgment coming. Even nature cries out, there is a judgment coming. The nations of the world cry out, there is a judgment coming. Men hate each other. Races hate each other. There's internal segregation and hatred all over this planet. There's genocide going on right now. There's hatred of Christians. There's martyrdom of Christians. The whole of creation is groaning out, something's wrong. And what is it? The very essence of God's promise that the blessings he gave to man will rise up and curse him. Look at verse 5. See, the death of the unjust is just the beginning of his sorrows. Because verse 5 says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The word stand there means to hold one's own, to go unhurt, to be unterrified, to maintain one's cause. The wicked cannot stand in that judgment. They cannot go unhurt. They cannot hold their own. There will be no comfort. There will be no Mardi Gras. There will be no reveling in what is an abomination before God. In that day, there will be no homosexual day at Disney World. There will be no aborting of the purposes of God. Why? They will cry to the mountains to fall on them. And the mountains will not fall. And they will rise to the mountains and run to the mountains and flee. Why? Because the chess game they have played with the devil is over. And God has declared checkmate. They've come to an end of themselves. He says, nor sinners will be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. Listen to me, friends. The church is going to be there. That's the assembly of the righteous. We're going to be there when this happens. We're going to watch this process unfold. I envision it this way, and I can't even begin to properly envision. In fact, the first chapter of Ezekiel, I believe, is a picture of this judgment, and I haven't heard one scholar able to explain what Ezekiel 1 is all about. I don't understand what it's about. You can't read Ezekiel chapter 1 and say, I understand that. It's almost a nondescriptive description of the judgment. And we'll be there. I'll be there, you'll be there. We're going to watch this. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, the wicked from the, the just, the righteous from the unrighteous, the saved from the lost. On the left hand will be those who he's preparing for judgment. On the right hand will be those of us who represent the assembly of the righteous. And all around us will be the angels. They've been waiting for this day. They've been waiting for this day. When Jesus died on the cross, I envisioned the angels standing there looking almost starkly at the Father, saying, we don't understand what's going on here. 
We know from the scriptures the angels cannot comprehend salvation because salvation was given to man. But they are the executors. They are the ones who carry out the orders. And I believe when Jesus was dying on the cross, they stood there with swords drawn, waiting for a nod from the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said? When he chastised Peter, Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could, I could call upon my Father, who would send 12 legions, 144,000 angels, to deliver me from this moment? But their swords have been sheathed. They've been forced to put them up, waiting for the day, waiting for that day, that precise moment that is known to the Father, that day in which the separation will take place, in which the very blessings will rise up to curse. You'll be there. I'll be there. We'll be standing there and we'll be observing this. We'll watch as the angels are finally given their final marching orders. They'll be given the nod from the Father and there will be great judgment executed upon the earth, executed upon creation, executed upon those who are standing on the left side. I believe what we're going to do is we're going to fall on our faces. That's what they do in heaven. They fall on their faces. They antiphonally sing from one end of heaven to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then you hear the echo over here. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Hosanna to the God of the highest. And you hear that, that holiness of God. And when this judgment takes place, we will cover our heads. We will fall before this holy God. Because all that he promised will now come to pass. The sinner will not be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. He will not be able to stand or take his stand in that day. He will then be cast headlong into the lake of fire, where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth in this outer darkness, where the worm does not die. And you can go ahead and laugh. You can laugh at the voice of these prophecies, but they will assuredly come to pass. You can go ahead and call us religious freaks and religious radicals. You can go ahead and call us hellfire and brimstone preachers. You can mock us like they did Billy Sunday, and yes, even Billy Graham, who preached consistently this message that there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. How many preachers now stand behind their pulpits and disregard this teaching altogether? We've come up with a new theory of an annihilationism that we can't comprehend or fathom a God who would eternally punish someone. So we, he must annihilate them. He must just bring them to an end. Annihilationism is not taught anywhere in Scripture. How many preachers stand behind their pulpits and disregard the concept of hell, disregard the concept of judgment? We don't want to offend anybody. We want to make sure that everybody walks out feeling good. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Here's a nice way for you to feel good. Let God zip open hell, take you by your toes, and dip you down inside of it for about two seconds, and then bring you out and point you to the cross. And when he points you to the cross and you say, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, that is not my lot. You'll feel real good when you come out of that hell for two seconds. You'll feel real good about who you are and what you have found in Jesus Christ. The real feel-good aspect of this is what? It is by grace that I have been saved through faith and that not of myself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That ought to cause you to feel real good. We're afraid of this. 
No one talk this way. How many preachers have denied the resurrection? They tell their people there is no resurrection. What do you say at a funeral? What hope do you give? How many preachers will have taken the word and said it's, it's really not the word of God, it's the word of men? It's not to be trusted. How many Bible verses have been thrown right out? I heard just this morning from a man, told me something incredible. Came from a church, and I, I hope he's wrong, but I've heard this concept before. He basically said that his pastor's theory is this, that God gave us scriptures that purposely contradict themselves just to show us how complicated God is. In other words, this man's theory is that the Bible contradicts itself. Therefore, it can't be trusted. And that just shows us how complicated God really is. No scholarship, no belief in the inerrancy of God's word. What do you tell your people? What hope do you give them? What promise do you give them? So go ahead and laugh at these prophecies. The great distinction will one day come to pass. The just and the unjust may at times be imperceptible in this life. You know that and I know that. Sometimes you can't tell the difference. Sometimes as Christians, we act just like the rest of the world does. And if we were to stand up against the unjust person, we would look exactly the same. We would act exactly the same. We would think exactly the same. Sometimes the differences are imperceptible. But you see, God knows the heart, doesn't he? God knows what's inside of here. I can fake you out. I can make you think things about me that aren't true. I can hold some sort of worldview that makes me look like I understand all these things. I can look like a Christian, act like a Christian, talk like a Christian. I can walk like a Christian. I can throw out all that Christian lingo, sing all the hymns the same way you do. And to the world, it might be imperceptible that I am any different than they are. But God knows the heart, doesn't he? He knows that in his visible church, which is what we are, there is the invisible church, which is made up of only believers. Some of you don't know him. You know about him. You're interested, but you don't know him. Yet you don't want anybody else to know that you don't know him. You want everybody else to believe that you're a believer. One time I saw a pastor. I'll never forget this. I saw a pastor who had been a pastor for over 40 years. 40 years. This man preached the gospel just like I preached the gospel. People came to Christ in droves under 40 years of ministry by this man. One day he came under severe conviction, stood up in front of his congregation, and said, for 40 years... I have played a game. I don't know Christ. I thought I did. I don't know Christ. And I came to that realization. And right here and right now, I want you to know I have given my heart to Jesus Christ in a way that is real. For 40 years, this man preached the same gospel that we preach. 40 years. And he wasn't even saved. You say, how could God bless that ministry that way? How could people come to faith in Jesus Christ when the man who's preaching it wasn't even saved? Listen to me, friends. When it comes to salvation, God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need your bright intellect. He doesn't need your wise words. 
He doesn't need your eloquent preaching. Listen to me closely. The story of Balaam and Balak, he could use a donkey to bring somebody to Christ. What makes you think he needs you? What makes you think he needs me? God does things wonderfully and majestically in ways he'll bring preaching even if the preacher doesn't know Christ. He'll preach the gospel in spite of the man who doesn't know Christ. You see, God is the author of salvation, and he knows what's in your heart. He knows where you sit this morning. Verse 6 says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. You want to develop a spiritual legacy? You need to teach your children that they can't play chess with the devil. You want to develop a spiritual legacy? You need to market in your children by teaching them how to make good choices. Everything you've taught your children for years can be undone in just a moment, in just a moment, when they sit in the seat of the mocker. How many children have had their lives ruined in the backseat of a car with somebody that was an unbeliever? When they beg their parents, but I'm in love, I'm in love, and we stand back foolishly as parents, and we allow our kids to pick their friends. Everything you've taught them, Everything you've raised them to believe can be undone in a heartbeat. The moment you stand back and say, I'm going to let them make their own choices. My children are going to call the shots. They're going to be the ones that make these decisions. Well, why should that surprise you? From the time they were little babies, they called the shots, didn't they? They told you when they're going to eat. They told you what they wanted. When they didn't get it, they screamed and yelled, and some of your kids have never grown up. They still do the very same things. We stand in a grocery store, and we watch our children humiliate us with horrible behavior. We say, well, wait until you get home. And when they get home, nothing happens. By the way, you should never wait until you get home. You should deal with it right on the spot. Be that as it may, we teach them a spiritual antinomianism. You know what that is? It's the law that says, God's going to forgive me. I can do whatever I want to do. God's going to forgive me because I am under grace. And we teach our children how to be spiritual antinomians, to abuse the grace of God by failing to discipline them properly. At some point along the way, you need to see to it that your kids love the word. That's a good indication that they're getting it. When they love the word, not because you love the word, but because they love the word. You need to look for spiritual growth that comes when they are tested. When they walk closer to the Lord as the result of sorrow and pain in their lives. Your children need to learn the art of contentedness. Instead of looking around at what everybody else has, being content with what God has given them. They must learn the art of seeing the blessings of God in the mundane things of life. The sitting and the walking and the standing, the way in which they just conduct their lives. The most important value our children can embrace is this. It's what is eternal that matters. It's not what's temporal. Our children must learn to put soul above body and eternity above time 
And as your children are being raised, if you don't see that happening, they're not getting it. And they're playing chess with the devil. Seldom does the unjust man reject his lifestyle until he sees that his lifestyle is fatalistic. Then he wants to talk. No matter how much the unjust seems to be blessed of God, those very blessings will one day rise up and condemn him. Why? Because there is a heaven to be gained and there is a hell to be shunned. The confusion and the chaos of life in this world where it rains on the just as well as the unjust will one day come to light when the eternal separation occurs. Until then, we must continually examine ourselves to see if we are in the Lord. We do that every day as we meditate in the word. Lord, where am I today? Where do I need to be? What fruit would you like to produce in me today? Where do I go where it's difficult for me to stand? What things need to be eliminated so that I can stand? What selfish habits or actions, Lord, do you want to work on eliminating in my life? What work do you plan on doing in me today, Lord? We examine ourselves every day as we examine ourselves in light of the word. When we come to worship, we do the same thing. When we come to the Lord's table, we examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the Lord. The greatest spiritual legacy you can give your children is to live this legacy yourself. That is, you must vow, you must commit every day that you are not going to play chess with the devil because you'll lose. You can't win that battle. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.